0: Stories from California Cattle Country is produced by the California Cattlemen's Foundation and receives support from the California Cattle Council. We've created this podcast for those wanting to connect with the people and practices of far-flung ranches and dairies in California through hearing stories from and learning more about the families and cattle country. This week we return to Humboldt County and speak with rancher Pete Busman. We had another trip planned to document the belling of cows, but the extraordinary snowpack has delayed the process a bit. In our last episode, we spoke with Jason and Dean Hunt, along with Justin Mora, about ranching in Humboldt County with an emphasis on managing the area's Roosevelt elk population. On that trip, I had the pleasure of meeting Peter Bussman, a rancher that was on hand to give biologist Carrington-Hilson and I access to ranch property in an effort to find elk, which we did. In talking with Pete, I found that he comes from a long line of ranchers in the area, created a redwood tree farm in Blue Lake, and volunteers his time to barbecue for large events over wood fire. We toured his cattle operation in Arcata, drove to Blue Lake to see his tree farm, and then cooked enough New York strips. I mean, he did all the cooking, which we later enjoyed at the historic Carson Mansion in Eureka as guests of the Ignamar Club. I'm Ryan Donahue, and this is Stories from California Cattle Country.
1: Are you? Good. So I, I gotta get my side by side. I'll be right back. Alright, no problem.
0: We'll just go for a ride. Alright. Move some cattle. And uh, who's this? That's Jack. What's up, Jack? Is it every two days they're moved? Yeah, sometimes every day, depending on the situation.
1: So this is recycled fence posts. Over. Oh, really? These are cedars.
0: how long have you been doing cookery for uh, large amounts of people it started somewhere in the 80s you met dean hunt
1: his wife was in cattle women's and so they had the idea they were going to sell them barbecued meat to uh, make money for cattle women plus promote so we we started with those gas barbecues out there throw them in the back of our pickup he'd have one i'd have one and we'd Cooked for different events, and, and then as time went on, the events got bigger and bigger, and
0: and he guys kind of disappeared, and all of a sudden it was just me. So, what do you yeah. get? Out, I mean, what do you get out of it personally? I mean, it's probably not. It's, it's a hobby.
1: Yeah. But, well, the the main thing is I got tired of going to barbecues and having burnt chicken. I mean, literally that's that's what started me or beef that was improper, is cooked too rare, too well done. That's how it started, and then it just wasn't. It just got bigger and bigger, and I got more
0: barbecues. What do you say the largest, largest uh, number of people you've cooked for was? Well,
1: the, the, there was the, what's called the Redwood Run. It was a Harley run at Piercy, and I did 1,000 pounds of meat in a weekend. So I have no idea how many people, but there was over 1,000 pounds of meat in one weekend, all tri-tip.
0: You have like a seasoning blend to use? Yeah, it's called Ten Barney's.
1: It's a local seasoning. Friend, a guy I went to high school with, and those are his two. It's basically real simple: salt, pepper, chili powder, garlic. That's it. So I'm Peter Busman. I'm a fourth generation cattle rancher in Humboldt County. I was born here and. Uh, probably die here so i raised beef cattle so the property i'm living on is was in 18 acquired by my great-grandfather in 1892 and then i have another set of great-grandparents in Arcata who got a ranch about the same time and i have that one also
0: so if you were to you know able to advise them uh now you know when they're making the decision to settle here uh would would this be the place you would have picked to settle and, and and have a ranch
1: that's hard to tell i mean i love eastern oregon i've been a lot of places but still this this area is unique i'm used to the the weather the rainfall the everything so trying to start over somewhere else or trying to figure the somewhere else to, to tell them to where where they should have went i I don't know where that is. The benefits of, of this area is a, a lot of the local ranches have both timber and cattle. And so you can switch back and forth as far as income to one can help the other in bad years. And so it, it having those two streams of income has helped quite a few ranchers.
0: If Can you just kind of summarize really quickly the reasoning behind taking what was once your family had clear-cut a forest and then reintroducing trees to it what was the motivation behind doing that
1: a lot of it wasn't motivation a lot of it was just listening to mother nature and mother nature started without me or before me in in bringing the trees back and all i did was fill in the holes after she had done 90 percent of the of the work uh, naturally so i just kind of finished it up and An area that was once old-growth timber is now second- and third-growth timber. Okay, so my great-grandfather purchased this place in 1892. At the time, they lived on another ranch. And then in 1922, my grandfather purchased it from his dad and came here and used it as dairy until it was paid for. And the, the day he paid for it was the day he sold the cows, the dairy cows and then he would start grazing sheep. The whole place was clear cut somewhere in the late 1800s, and then it was burned periodically every year until about 1930. Of course, the purpose then, they, you know, there was no value in young trees. Nobody was planting young trees to, for economics. So the economics, you, know, you had to have cattle or sheep for, to uh, make any money on the land. Somewhere around 1930, either my grandfather got lazy or you saw the handwriting on the wall, you quit burning them intensely. So at that point, Mother Nature took over. No trees were planted, but Mother Nature planted the trees or re-sprouted them, whatever she did. Today, there's a a forest back that wasn't there in the early 1900s. In 1974, my grandmother passed away, so I had to get money for inheritance taxes. By that time, there was some Merchable timber. There's been a little logging up until that point, but not a lot. I logged enough to just pay the inheritance taxes. And then in about 1982, I started to see that there was Merchable timber. And uh, got a hold of of a forester named Jim Abel. And we made a forest management plan and basically started logging. The last livestock were removed in 1985, just because there just wasn't enough for them to eat. I mean, it just got down to fewer and fewer cattle. And so I decided to pull what few animals were left and plant trees. And so those trees that you saw was the ones I planted in 1985. In 1982, the forester cruised the timber, and at that point, There was 1.7 million board feet of standing timber on about a hundred acres. Since that time, we've harvested
0: four to five times. Because there it says in 2011, it's got to 2.9 million board feet, and I have to imagine that it's 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 more now. So
1: on now, we have logged 3.2 million board feet. So we started with 1.7. We've logged 3.2 million, and there's. 3.2 3.2 million still left.
0: Yeah, as a truck just drove by with a yes. bunch of logs yes. on the back of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. So,
1: you know, I started out with 1.7. I still have 3.2, and I've logged 3.2 since 1982. Jim Abel likes to tell the story that, you know, I was considering subdividing, which you can see is a possibility because I'm right on the outskirts of Blue Lake. So the income beats the. Selling for houses over time.
0: Talking about the Aleutian geese because we talked last week or our last episode was about Roosevelt elk, which are in the same area. But can you just explain how they affect your operations and kind of how they operate?
1: So, so a little history. They they were almost ex- extinct. They were down to three, four hundred birds. The work began to bring back the species, and it was a very one of few success stories of the endangered species act they went from that 400 to today there's over 200,000 of them and so that if there's a drawback to that is that they they're very congregated they don't they don't spread out over a lot of area and so they impact a few ranchers very heavily for a short period of time but the good thing is is versus the elk is is that they leave you know on April 15th they leave I'm not sure if it's because the government wants to tax them or what. But they're gone on April 15th, and it's just like clockwork. Then they come back in September, October, and just stay here for a short while. And this last year was one of the first years that they impacted everybody in the fall because they stayed here a little longer because it was between the fires and it was so hot in the valley, they didn't want to go down there but they they finally did, but then they came back a little later this year, just because of of all the rain in the valley when they were there, so they stayed and stayed cool and basically they like to as soon as it gets hot in the valley, they like to come up here, and so this year it was later, so uh, their impact this year was wasn't as great because they were here for a shorter period of time, but they they will literally literally take fields that have six inches of grass down to nothing. And so, and not just in little areas. And so if they can come in and in one or two days and just wipe a field out.
0: I wanna talk a little bit about the tree farm and the two things I wanna cover. One is earlier we were talking and you said something about how like tax liability on old growth changed. But the other thing I want you to touch on, if you could, is it seems fascinating to me that someone would grow something that takes 50 years to harvest.
1: I started this, probably this venture in probably 1985. I had numerous older couples to back up a little bit. I do a lot of tours and good for other forest landowners and that. And I remember the more than one couple talking about, why are you doing this? You know, you're never going to get anything, and the government's just going to take it anyway. But I was a little more positive, and it was just something I wanted to do. And and I had seen the trees grow over my lifetime to what they were at that point, and and they were about 50 years old at that point. So since then, just by thinning, you know, I don't I don't clear cut anything, but I just I just thin, and I just take the 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 trees that are they're being uh, crowded out by the bigger trees so I leave the bigger trees take the smaller trees I don't do it just one time it's what's called a gentle thinning and you basically go in you have five trees you take two of them and then you move on you wait eight years and you come back and do the same thing again pick five trees take two of them and so it's real simple you don't worry about trying to space the trees or, or look at the big picture or you, you keep it small so that it doesn't uh, get you all confused.
0: Would you say that it's been a successful investment opposed to, I don't know what the alternative is, just like leaving it clear cut and putting cows on it, but is it it's it's has it been working out?
1: Well, it, it's, it's been very successful. My forester, who I got to give credit to, Jim Abel, always talks about he's got to figure it figured out. It's been 11 12% per annum uh, return. And so for every year for the last... Forty years, so I think it's higher than that. But that's that's what he's come up with. But when you're when you're growing the timber, you're not taxed on the timber that's that's there. You only get taxed on when you cut it. Over time, you get the increased growth of the trees plus the increased of, of the value over the years. Like I said earlier, in the before this early '70s, the standing timber was taxed, and so for the ranches that had old-growth timber, they had to log the timber because they couldn't afford to pay the taxes on the standing timber. That was the one of the main causes of a lot of the old-growth being logged.
0: I found it kind of fascinating. I saw you have a plaque inside uh, from the Buckeye. Can you explain that organization at all, and then why it's needed in Humboldt County?
1: So, a guy named Andy Westfall and some others, and myself, were the founding directors. Andy was the first chairman i was the vice chairman and then chairman and and basically was we needed a local organization we've had we had farm bureau and and Cattlemen's that which were state organizations and national without any fault to anybody i mean they had people to the whole state that they had to answer to so we needed a local organization that just answered to us, that looked out for our local issues. And so that's basically was the uh, the reasoning behind starting it. And it, it just to give local voices that just are for the local people.
0: Because recently, given the extreme precipitation, there are a lot of cattle that were stranded basically in higher elevations, do you know anything about like using the Coast Guard helicopters to drop hay bales
1: I know about it I, I didn't have to use it. I was lucky enough that I had a side by side with tracks and I had two good employees that didn't mind going out in the snow and so they basically fed all my stuff that was out in the snow but uh, you know there were a lot of other people that just couldn't get to their cattle a little story side note to that I worked for Joe Rest the third in Oh, between 68 and till about 78. And so in the early 70s, there was a snowstorm just like this. And he had cattle on top of Rainbow Ridge, one of the places they went to this time. And of course, there was no Coast Guard or National Guard helicopters then, at uh, least available. So I was fresh out of Vietnam, and he hired an airplane out of Rohnert Field. And they took the door off. They took the passenger seat off and they took the rear seat out and they they stuffed hay in there. They put me on the running boards or, or my feet were on the running boards and the, I was sitting on the side and then they tied a rope around my waist and tied it to the pilot seat. And away we went up over Rainbow Ridge. And so then it was my job to push the hay bales out, try to hit where the cattle were. And so I'm just getting ready to push one out and he says, oh, by the way, he says, Make sure you push down hard enough because if you don't, it'll just go back and take the wing off. So these these guys had it too easy. They had their helmets on and you know their earphones and and uh, enclosed helicopters. So
0: I am going to be talking about how your kind of love of cooking of barbecue. Why do you do it? What you believe the best process is for cooking the meat and like what's your you know favorite kind of cut to to cook.
1: So I guess I guess it started off that you know I was. Friend of mine's wife was in cattlewomen's and and uh, she got us going and cooking for cattlewomen events. And, but after that, it got so that I got tired of going to events and having burnt chicken. And so I just decided I'd start cooking some more myself after helping the cattlewomen. And now it's about 40 years ago. So uh, there's been a lot of barbecues since then and now. Now I've uh, settled on a lang barbecue that is a reverse flow smoker and I think it does a pretty good job and it's easy to easy to use it's all wood fired and uh,
0: and how many times have you used it
1: okay this is my brand new one and this was today was the maiden voyage and so it I did pretty good for the maiden voyage so i'm I'm happy with it
0: what wood do you typically smoke on
1: so I use I like black oak, it's local, and uh, it's just I just like the flavor.
0: And then as far as cuts of beef, if you were to have a preference, and I know you do big events and things like that, but what's your favorite for doing kind of larger events?
1: So my favorite is the New York strip. There's no questions.
0: And that's what you you did today, right? Yes. All right. Well, I want to thank you. It's um. It's really beautiful out here. It's hard to explain, like, you know, obviously this is a podcast, so it's all audio, but we have a couple, you know, um, mouser cats around, a couple chickens right next to us, and then uh, some ravens overhead. Thank you very much for your time and for allowing me to come and bother you for a whole day. Thank you. If you'd like to see visuals from our travels, you can see them at www.calcattlecouncil.org or on Instagram at Country. You can keep an eye on our Instagram account as we'll be offering followers a chance to get two and a half pounds of Pete's go-to beef seasoning. We'll be back in two weeks. Thank you for listening.